here we are, here we are again, another morning. Some of you won't know what morning you're in. Um, yeah? So, it doesn't really matter, does it? Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday. But on the board this morning, there are a number of questions, and some of them relate to what I thought might be a helpful thing to reflect on this morning, which is the Brahma Bihar and the, the heart qualities, and others are in a different direction. So what I thought to do was to address one I thought was more pressing, talk about this heart cultivation of Brahma Bihar, and then answer some of the specific questions. Yeah? And there'll be a real overlap in this, of course. Because, as we know, when you pick up any bit of the teaching, the rest comes with it. So, the question was, any tips for when my back starts aching? Yeah? I'm in a chair and I think I haven't... I have decent posture, but after 30 minutes or so into a sitting, I get burning pain in my shoulders shoulder blades and neck. The time on retreat doesn't seem to have helped yet. I know I can take the pain as an object and that helps, but it's not so much fun. Anyway, as you have tons of experience sitting, wonder if you have any pointers about those spots or pain in general. Yeah? So we all know this, don't we? And some of us, as it says, have spent a very long time having to feel the discomfort of having a body. So what do we do with it? And it's the way our response starts on a kind of grosser level, a more surface level, or can do. It's like, what is the posture like? And sitting on a chair can be a challenge. And so I just, a few comments to make. That you need to make sure you know, that, and I'm not now, but that your, your feet and your knees are not tipping down because it actually puts a strain on the back. Yeah? So I see many of you have got cushions and it's just good to check it out. And even if you think it's fine but you're getting aching, experiment. Because yeah. it can be these subtle shifts that mean, you know, it starts off all right, but actually there's a strain happening. So we want a really grounded posture. And sometimes it helps to come off the back of the chair. Because it's the wrong shape. So in a way it's forcing us to have the spine in the wrong position. No, it can be a support, or it could be something that's actually bringing some kind of distortion. So we, we come off that. All of us need to be able to sit on chairs. Yeah. And then, what's happening here? Because for many of us, it actually is a place we hold tremendous tension. Yeah. And it can be that we've spent a great deal of our lives, you know, Leaning forward into experience, that the kind of 
seeming demands of our lives have us just slightly disembodied. So once again it's coming back and being able to just really energetically rest back and then letting it relax. Noticing, I, I noticed myself and it was fascinating talking with you know friends that have sat for a decade, and they, you know, one had this sudden realization they're actually straining. That's why my encouragement at the very beginning was to actually move about a bit, so that you're checking what the habit is. So, and it may be that our lives have had such stress that our bodies have got used to being contracted. And then we need to be doing practically things that help free that up. So I know some of you have yoga practices, Tai Chi practices, massage, all this that is actually working just with the results in the body, freeing it up. So it can help. No, I can't do it now, but you know, moving your arms even in circles and just relaxing this part before we sit. You know, I was yesterday when I was in the hall in the afternoon, just seeing the, when the bell rung, there was a whole lot of arms that came up and stretched. Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful. I don't know if any of you noticed, but there was this whole arms coming up and stretching <laughs> above people's heads, and I thought. No, so we do what we can to look after this physicality. It's a very tender, sensitive thing. And it can experience excruciating pain. So we look after it, you know, check it out. And then there we are and we've done what we can and it still hurts. What do we do with that experience? And what you'll have noticed is wherever you put attention, energy gathers. Yeah? Check it out. And what the tendency is when something's painful is to put the attention there very tightly. Here we are with my pinched nerve. And we just go boom right here and intensifies it. And the skill is is in making a lot of space. So I'm actually attending here, at least. You know? So the mind's not constricting, adding energy and tightness. You know? we're, we're, we're allowing a bigger <coughs> space for this experience. Oh, and there, there's actually energetic work we can do with the breath. So the breath is wonderful in terms of pain you know, and rebalancing. So normally in the morning, I'm actually look like I'm sitting on the mat, but I'm actually doing yoga. Right? Moving, using the in-breath to notice the energy down the back, on the left side, left leg, just noticing 
in-breath here, relaxing on the out-breath, noticing the in-breath here, noticing the in-breath through this circle of experience, you know, the arms, shoulders, feeling the in-breath in the top of the abdomen, the in-breath here, you know, in a sense just really making sure this whole experience is really alive and that the energy, I'm aware of the breath filling it. And it makes a huge difference for me. <coughs> Who as the note notices has certainly had a lot of physical pain to work with. So we can work in that way. And we can work noticing what it's like to have an experience we don't want. And can we soften around that too? So, as I was saying last night, this, is the heart open or is the heart closed? It closes with not wanting. Yeah? It closes with the kind of grasping of wanting. But it opens when we are prepared to be present to whatever. So we notice this opening and closing and with the pain, can we be present for it? And what you might notice if we stop just trying to move away from unpleasant feeling, the unpleasant feeling changes. It's not that it goes away, but it becomes more just an energetic experience. Yeah. In some ways, it's delightful. Yeah. So, we have to be really compassionate in this work because it's so tiring to be sitting with physical pain. And it actually can be so agitating for the mind that we really take care of ourselves in it. We don't overstrain. We come out of the view of what practice should look like. And if after half an hour of sitting, the discomfort is no longer something we can be present for, we stand up. Yeah. And we let the energy shift. We practice, as I've said before, we practice lying down and feel what it's like if your body's got tightness in it, what it feels like to be held and where the stress of the body can just be relaxed. And how more present we may be. So I don't know if that helps, but you know, I put a list on the down on the notice board again, you know, where there's opportunity in the next not today, but in the next couple of days to catch in. And I'm really happy to talk about this more. Yeah? So as we can hear, as we experience in in working with pain and working with any experience, the heart qualities are essential. And if we go back 
to the Buddha's words, the experience when he was asked about where his mind abided, he said it either was in emptiness, this experience where it's really rested back from conditions, or it was in compassion. So relating to manifestation with this quality of compassion. And I don't know about you, but in my work, you know, going out to work and having to be with all kinds of different people and all kinds of different experience, and what's the intention for the day? Do you, do you dedicate your days? Do you think, well, here am I, I'm waking up, I'm going out the door, what am I bringing with me? And what I find most helpful is to come out my door or come out of my sleep with a sense that actually as much as I am capable, may I bring compassion, loving kindness, joy and equanimity. These heart qualities. Really consciously. Because it means whatever's going on, we have a, a practice place to meet it from. And we get the heart stability to wake up to it. And our lives are not lived from a small place about what we want and where we're going. And I mean, that is also what it's like to be alive. You know, we, need, we need to work we need to have requisites, you know, shelter, food, clothes, all of this. But we're also part of manifestation. You can see me, you can hear me, I'm here. Right? So what quality do we bring to that? Is our life lived from this place of blessing? You know, doesn't mean we don't get upset and annoyed and frustrated and despairing, but we're willing to work with that, to to really see through it, so we're not perpetuating it. There is already enough of it going on. Yeah, so we're not not adding to the dukkha if we can. And of course, there are times when we get overwhelmed. So, what's it like? And we're fortunate to have this laying out of the four Brahma Vihar. And one of the questions was, was about, do they have a specific order in terms of cultivation? That's an interesting question. And because... In all the recollections, they come with the sense of metta, loving kindness or friendliness, with compassion, with joy, sympathetic joy, a sense of recognizing others' good fortune, and with this quality of equanimity. And when we're actually experiencing this cultivation, we realize 
aha, yes they do. There is a kind of logic to it. And I'm tempted, but I've decided not to, even though I've brought it, to go into <laughs> the formless realms in terms of this. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because maybe I'll just read a touch. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a long sutta on the enlightenment factors, which we'll get to. Yeah? But in it, the, the Buddha's talking about the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Now, here he's talking about the um, a kind of conventional level of liberation. Yeah, the mind is freed out of the hindrances, freed out of unwholesomeness. But in other places, we, we know that these cultivations are a door to the deathless. You can, and at the time of the Buddha, there were folk who their sole practice was metta practice. It is a door. And what they'd cultivate this, and then they would see the characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. So it's not that we do a bit of metta and we go off and do something else. It's like these are profound practices. So, the Buddha. And how is the liberation of mind by loving kindness developed? What does it have as its destination, its culmination, its fruit and its final goal? So he talks about developing the enlightenment factors with loving kindness. And we say we'll hesitate on those, but they, you know, so we get the factor of equanimity accompanied by loving kindness based upon seclusion, dispassion, cessation, maturing, and release. He wishes, because he's talking to a a monk, may I dwell pervading the repulsive and the unrepulsive. May I dwell receiving the repulsive therein. So really feeling the what you don't want, the unpleasant. May I dwell perceiving the unrepulsive and the repulsive. So it's, as I talked early on, it's this ability to not to like butter, not to like butter, to see, to really be able to shift our perception around. That we see, we see in what we don't like, things that we do like. And the things we like, we see the unpleasant as well. Yeah? We can really, we see the whole of something that it has positive and negative. So, if he wishes, he can dwell perceiving, avoiding both repulsive and unrepulsive. It's an unfortunate choice of words, but 
May I dwell equanimous, mindful and clearly comprehending. And so he dwells that way, yes. And he dwells in the deliverance of the beautiful. So the sense of the mind really attuned to beauty. And then the other factors the liberation of mind by compassion has the base of infinity of space as its culmination for someone who has not penetrated to something higher a superior liberation and then joy Infinity of consciousness. So it's like uh, one is an object. This is the around the object. So it's a it's a kind of progression. And then we get liberation of equanimity, base of nothingness. Yeah. So it's a may not mean very much, but just a sense that there. They're about refinements of where the attention is, how the, how the mind's actually configured. So in a more accessible way, we get the recollections. May I abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, and freedom from anxiety, and may I maintain well-being in myself. Yeah. So, really, the sense of well-wishing, metta, loving kindness, to really feel what it feels like to wish ourselves freedom from anxiety, the tenderness of that. Yeah. yeah from hostility, from affliction. Mm. In a meta chart we chant, it has this quality of a mother's love for their only child. So it's very tender. Okay, so the, the recollection starts here. Mm. What it's like if we relate to this experience of mind and body that we're each having from this place of tenderness. Mm. And that has been, in a sense, my encouragement right through, in a sense of you taking authority for yourselves, that you're really tuning in and you know where you need to be. Mm. If you need to be in the hall, you're in the hall. If you need to be lying down, you're lying down. If you need to be out in the space of the trees and the sky, that's where you are. With this experience of real attunement and tenderness. And because most of the world is telling us what we should be doing, yep, it's an essential cultivation we have become dissociated from our own experience. We've been overriding it. Take it from me.
really not tuning in. So my sense is that for each of us, all we had done on this retreat is once laid down when we needed to, out of the sense of tenderness. It's radical. And then we spread this quality out. May everyone abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety, and may they maintain well-being in themselves. May all, well, we'll be moving, but so the sense of spreading out that sense of tenderness, it means we're going to start tuning. And the trick is to keep it grounded. And it's a hard thing to do. It's easier to sit here and spread it than to do it in the very circumstances of our lives. So it's a cultivation. It's something to be considering. And we practice it here in this practice community by really being conscious of who is sitting next to you with this quality. Being particularly conscious of the folk who are newer here. That we we recognise that there will be anxiety. Mm. That there there will be all kinds of things going on. And I haven't spoken to anyone who hasn't got some afflictedness they're carrying. And it can be subtle. So you can know each person here will benefit from being bathed in loving kindness. So then we move to this quality of compassion. And what's for me, fascinating, is in the Buddha's cultivation, when he, when he gave up on cultivating meditative states and started to think, well, let's really find a way out of this, he, he looked at the kind of unwholesome roots. And there's lust, and there's ill will, and there's cruelty. And metta is the medicine for ill will. This not wanting, this unfriendliness. So we just really notice because it's it's the way we come out of the roots that are of darkness that stop us seeing. So, metta 
is the medicine. And for the cruelty we have, compassion is the medicine. So each of you will have a different understanding of this. But when I think, well, ill will, cruelty, what's the difference here? They've been given different medicines. What are they about? My sense is ill will is a kind of not wanting to be present, this unfriendliness. Cruelty is a bit more active. We start pushing things away. We're pushing away the sounds. This is subtle, yeah, but it's we're now in a subtle place. But we can, in our lives, it can get less subtle. We're actually doing mean things. <laughs> we're not we're not attuning to what we might need for ourselves or others might need. Yeah. So the the recollection here is may all beings be released from suffering. So we're actually attuning to the suffering, our own other people's. And I don't know about you, but if I actually attune, if I dare to notice, compassion is a natural response. We don't want to see people hurting. We're, we tremble that we may actually be hurting other people. Most of us live our lives with a lot of thoughtfulness. And we come to the quality of sympathetic joy. And the way in this text it's talked about, may they not be parted from the good fortune they have gained. So what's happened is the mind has got enough clarity to actually see goodness. And in this kind of place it's easy to see I was sitting at breakfast this morning and just there and then I suddenly felt this feeling of how lovely it was to sit across from my breakfast companion who was eating with real zen composure. It was just really lovely. Now I'm not watching them because we're not doing that but just aware, aware of this quality and really Noticing the quality of the folk around, their cultivation, their good fortune. And we can see, you know, someone wins the lottery. Do you have the lottery here? (laughs) Yeah? They've got 
$26 million. And what does a heart do? You know, it's extreme, but a sense of, can we actually rejoice in somebody else's good fortune? They get the thing we wanted. So it becomes a real way we can look also at the desire of the mind, whether we can bring this quality there immediately. Yeah? So some of these become mirrors. You know, I find it really helpful, particularly when I'm working, to think, oh, can I feel metta for this? And if I can't, I know the mind's getting obscured by ill will. And with this quality of sympathetic joy, can I actually feel delighted in somebody's qualities? Not a kind of mean wishing I had it too. Not trying to cut it a little. Put them down a little somewhere else. Actually receive it and feel delight. And in our own good fortune. It's a, these qualities are essential counterbalances. Yeah? Because if we're not careful with metta, karuna, we're only attuning to affliction and suffering and we can kind of get capsized. Yeah? We're only attuning to part of something and missing the rest and it can become lacerating. So, in the work you know, I've been doing till this latest little shift a few, you know, six months ago, I was working, as many of you are, with the dying. Can we attune to the good fortune? And what was, I guess, it was a constant astonishment to me how loved people were. Dying's going to happen. But the incredible care and love people receive from families, from strangers. It is a real miracle going on. I have seen people who for most of their lives have been alienated and small and in their dying feel so loved and valued you know, that it's a whole different thing. That supposed strangers have cared and looked after them. It's transformative. And seeing people uncurl, and you think, you could think, well, terrible, they're dying. But you can also notice, isn't this extraordinary? 
that they're feeling this experience of love. And so we, it helps, particularly if you're working on some of these really edges of human experience. The miracle of love. I was endlessly taken by surprise. And then this ultimate quality of heart. What's seen as the highest kind of love. When they act upon intention, all beings are the owners of their action and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action, and its results will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful and harmful, of such acts, they will be the heir. So what do we make of that? It's, it's, in my experience, this recognition of conditionality. Each of us is here dependent on causes and conditions. Given the conditions, Tania could not be any other way at this moment. It doesn't matter with mean that with other conditions, you know, like waking up a little, I couldn't be different, but that at this moment, at this time, at this place, it is not causeless. We have to be careful with this, of course. It's not that it's anybody's fault. I heard the most terrible things said at the time of the tsunami. That, that terrible Christmas tsunami. So some things are just about being born in this time. It's not personal, personal, personal. It's about being born at this time into this experience, living where we live. And the Buddha would say, if you try to work out karma, you'll go crazy. Only Buddha (laughs) self. But we need to get a little taste that there's results to what we do and that this is so for everybody. Because when we see the causality, we can have this quality of being able to be present to everything. We're not no longer fighting with it. As it manifests in that moment, it doesn't mean that we then don't do what we can to help with these other qualities, but we're not coming from a deluded place. It's something that, you know, 
I think we take, we need to keep exploring what does it really mean. I had an experience that gave me one way of looking at it that I found really helpful. And I'm sure my twin won't mind me talking about it. And it was, you know, I went back when my twin sister was going to have her first baby. I was supposed to get there after, just how things were working when I could get, was allowed to go home really. And, but the baby was still due. He's now a big lad. And we were having a home birth. She was having a home birth, or a home birth was happening. And for some reason, all my sisters had showed up. So it was my brother-in-law, or now brother-in-law, said it was like a house with witches. (laughs) (laughs) So it it had this wonderful feel. (laughs) She was older, and, and the midwife came, and at a certain point, because she was older, the midwife said, well, I don't know if some of you will know, but about the meconium, mm-hmm. a little bit showed. And normally that might be all right, but because she was older, they thought, well, we don't want to risk anything. Let's just transfer into the hospital. And we're all hoping she just has the baby. But she ends up transferring in the ambulance. And the witches all go along. <laughs> and suddenly we're in the hospital. In this kind of room, you know, with benches and she's there. And it was just antiseptic, stainless steel, a very different field, yeah. And the registrar, a little team, came into the room. And I could feel this shock. And they came in and they just looked at my sister and they flew into action and started jabbing her with things and and, and they were going to whisper away and she was having a seizure. And unfortunately, at the point when they started really panicking, I passed out. (laughs) (laughs) Straight over backwards onto a stainless steel table. (laughs) My sister said I expressed how she felt. (laughs) So we don't know. We were we're very connected. Like, you know. I won't tell you what it was like, her having a baby, but but, as twins can be. So there was this tremendous shock, panic, and, you know, they just took over and the whole thing kind of happened in a really medical way. But where the sense of karma came from is we found out later the very previous baby they'd lost. 
So there she was, maybe it was going fine, but they couldn't bear any risk. Mm -hmm. And it was the sense of, was it my sister's kama? Well, all we know is she stepped into a field at a particular time. Yeah. So it can be like that. We're there. And I'm not going to go, who am I? I can't go back and say, well, it's because she did this in some other lifetime or whatever. What I can know is she stepped into a field that had come and became part of that. It's a bit like, here you are in the United States. There are particular things you inherit, inherit in that that I don't have. No? I come from the South. I have different karma. Yeah? It can be that simple. There are certain ways you are all configured I don't have. And there are certain ways I'm configured you won't have. It's just about where we come from. And we're not even saying what's right and wrong. It's just the simple sense that where we are, what's happened to us has results. And it can bring a sense of steadiness. It's not personal. Yeah? Am I making sense? It comes, it starts to help break down some of the identification. And it can also help with our experience of powerlessness. Because when we really see things are the result of causes, we then start bringing wholesome causes, wholesome roots of mind. We're incredibly powerful. You only have to look at a few beings who have decided to take action within your own history. I was in a house the other day and there was a little photo of Rosa Parks. She just decided she wasn't getting off the bus. That's what it says under the picture. It wasn't even a great radical vision of changing something. It was just coming into an experience of, at this time, I'm going to respond differently. I'm not going to respond out of fear. You can see how radical some of this can be. It probably felt like a big thing from her point of view to be doing, like a very vulnerable thing to be doing, but had no idea of the consequences. So understanding this really gives us a sense of capacity.
too. In terms of this manifestation we live in. Softening, softening the self boundary. I'll attend to some of these other questions now, and we can come back to this whole cultivation. Some other point if it's helpful. So, I think I'll pick them up randomly. So, the first part of this question, um, I think, had was about metta and compassion in the sense of how dry practice can be if we're just, if we're not actually cultivating this, these heart qualities. So they're essential. But cessation of consciousness, does this mean cessation of self-consciousness, self-reference, and that awareness continues? What's your experience? Mine is that it really is about this selfing experience. The Buddha, in saying the cessation of consciousness, I think has been tricky again. In a way, um, inviting us to explore something because it sounds so bizarre. So it's the, the grasping consciousness that makes object subject that arises through the six sense bases, you know, eye, ear, tongue, these experiences that make up this experience of manifestation. So when we stop grasping and making an assumption based on this these, you know, eye consciousness, ear consciousness. We hear something so that we think there must be somebody hearing. We rather, we're, we're able just to let this experience happen. In the seeing there is just the seeing. Hearing there is just the hearing. So it's not that we're not hearing and we're not seeing. We haven't become um, a stone. So as this question points to, awareness continues. Fully alive. So, but the mind has rested back from this tendency to grasp experience to make a self-boundary. And that's why the Brahma-Vihar cultivations are really helpful too. 
because they soften this edge of me being here and the painfulness of that, particularly if I arise on painful experience and you being there. Yeah? So we come and we can feel just the knowing of the mind. Unentangled knowing, as Upasakagi would call it. Unentangled knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Would the Buddha have used the word citta for that knowing, or mano? Because in no. English we don't yeah. have the nuances yeah. that existed in his time in the Pali. Yeah. So mano is kind of mental function. Citta is this kind of where intention and our attention and these things are arising from. It's an effective experience. Um, yes, so the Buddha had very subtle ways of talking about our experience, our conscious experience. But in, in we get liberated, the titter gets liberated. Yeah. And how do we talk about that? You know, that's the challenge the Buddha gives to these Brahmins too. So it's, it's an experience of presence or consciousness that is not constrained or shaped by grasping at all. Yeah. And it's why he uses all kinds of words for this, this mind that hasn't been configured in that way because we don't want to construct something either. So we just come back into this knowing of the mind, the Buddha, Buddha, the knowing what's happening. Yeah? Language starts to fail us because language is dualistic and we're talking about an experience that has stopped being dualistic. Yeah. <coughs> so, regarding practice and leaning back, letting the breath touch the mind, the breath gets more fine, the mind more prominent. Sometimes no breath, just mind, but still an observer. and asking about that experience. So when things got really fine, there can be still some selfing going on. And it's a, I think at the beginning some of us were talking about the noting practices, the sense of the watcher, and how we can get trapped where there's something watching. Mm. Me watching this, me watching the breath, me watching my moving my hand, putting my foot down, a kind of construct, a kind of it's a it's has some wisdom in it, it has this it has mindfulness, but it needs relaxing. Rest 
back a little further. No, just, no, just see that if there's if that whole sense, we just relax that sense of there's somebody here doing it, and just come more directly into what's really going on and inquire. Yeah. We can talk more about this. It's often more helpful in dialogue and conversation because as, as language really fails in a way. But we can get trapped with the watcher and it's a really dry, painful place. So then we need to start watering the heart, softening. Here am I watching. I'm watching this, I'm watching that. But it it doesn't free us. It certainly is better than being completely heedless, because we start to notice things from that place. But it still still has something constructing in there. So, am I clear or would benefit from a deeper understanding of the factor confidence? So this this factor that the Buddha talked about right when the Brahmins showed up. He, He talked about this quality of sadha that along with, oh, I haven't got the text here, but along with um, the head splitting, you know, mm-hmm. understanding splitting the head with its powers and support, confidence, yeah, as the first. So this quality of confidence. And it's really the quality they came with. Yeah. How would you have slogged uh, through India, traipsing here, traipsing there, with a sense that actually, putto, it's possible to wake up. Yeah. So this is the quality the Brahmins had shown, a kind of confidence. It's not all hopeless. There is some point to this cultivation. Yeah. And we may not know our confidence. I mean. Even that we're here shows a degree of confidence. Would be much easier lying out on the beach, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Maybe not, but mm-hmm. you know, just off doing something else than actually just having to be here with whatever is arising. So there's a confidence that brings you here, brings me here, that there's some point to all of this. That here there, everywhere, we're capable of reducing the ignorance that brings suffering. We may not, some of you may not wake up completely today, but it may happen tomorrow. (laughs) And I know it sounds funny, but actually, Six-year-olds woke up in the time of the Buddha. It's not about age or anything. 
it's just about being willing to really see the Four Noble Truths. You know, we, these forms can trick us into think we haven't put in enough hours. We're not old enough yet. You know, but as friend and I were talking about yesterday, we don't want to wait that long. We don't want to be 120 years old and too old to go to the Buddha. Yeah. So that's the confidence. It's worth getting down to it. Because freedom from this experience of ageing and death is possible. Not that the body won't do it, but that our mind will not be identifying with it. Mm. The question here, um, I've been sitting with what does it feel like to have no desires? Or what would it feel like to have no desire? You know, this thing the Buddha is pointing to, what would it feel like? It's a wonderful question. You know, to start just sensing out what what this possibility is. Yeah. And you'll notice in moments you're actually touching it. So I've been able on occasion to see, feel the self arise after a sense impression, feeling occurs. Yeah. Which is wonderful. But I'm not able to resolve it more finally. Where again is the spot in dependent origination where this can occur? So it when we're sitting here, yeah, we're aware something happens. No, my back starts hurting. So there's been a sense impression and already I've got a designation of feeling. So with the shoulder you could just say it's boom, boom, Uh, a sensation. So there's this sensation and then a sense of feeling arises unpleasant feeling and the place that often it's seen that we can cut as they say not go on into the whole proliferation into the ends and death is at the place between feeling and desire So the feeling is there and the wanting or not wanting is where we get into trouble. So feel it. When you feel that unpleasant feeling, feel the thing that starts not wanting it because you'll see that there's a self 
construct arising. It's come out of direct experience. Thinking, mental formations, intention, attention, all of this has started to arise. So I thought just to read it as the Buddha talked about it. And for some of you, this won't make much sense because it's talking in the you know, language, some of the language we haven't talked about. So don't worry about it. You know, come back more to this experience we're talking about. You know? But for those of you who have been grappling with this for a long time, I'll just read it again. On ignorance, avicca, depend sankhara, mental formations. On mental formations depends consciousness. On consciousness depends mental and physical existence. Mind, body. So, in a way, here we are. Body, mind, consciousness. And on this physical and mental existence depend the six sense organs, eye, ear, nose, body, tongue, here. I'm here born, now I can feel and see. On sensory impression, so when things come into contact, feeling is born. Vedana, on feeling depends craving. And on craving depends clinging, upadana. So you get the wishing and then you get the holding. I've got it. Yeah? And on that becomes the process of becoming. You can hear it. I've got it. Here I am. Yeah, but on that, on the process of becoming, or the karma process, you get rebirth, you get old age, sickness, sorrow, lamentation, grief and despair. This arises the whole mass of suffering. This is called the noble truth of the origin of suffering. So, just to tee you up. <laughs> Thus, so later on, a disciple, however, in whom a ignorance, a vicha, has disappeared and wisdom has arisen. Yeah? So this is what we're talking about through the entire fading away and extinction of ignorance, karma formations are extinguished. So the whole, the whole um, grasping, constructing, this ceases. And with this ceasing, consciousness ceases. So we're back at the cessation of consciousness. And then which goes through looking at how 
you don't get this whole experience that leads to birth. You just you become freed out of this endless becoming. And in the immediate reality, it's not that we've gone away. It's just we're not taking birth dependent on ignorance. We're here based, or here, I mean it's not, it becomes difficult to talk about, but consciousness is wise. And then it doesn't have this whole process of grasping that ends in death and decay and suffering. Check it out. Mm. Yeah, this is called the noble truth of extinction suffering. So we can see the Buddha talks about this waking up process in all kinds of different ways because there are all kinds of different minds. Yeah, we all have very different capacities. So we need to pick up practice at a place which works for us. Some of us will cultivate the Brahma Vihar. Some will investigate. Some will use deep experiences of calm to really penetrate Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Some will go walking through their day just noticing how things keep changing. It can be extraordinary what this does. Back to my family, my dear mother, who maybe it's seven years ago, my folks are ordinary people, one could say, living good lives, but in rural, isolated bit of New Zealand. And you know, they had worked all their lives. In fact, my dads, they both ended up working into the 80s, but they worked hard and they had a little bit of retirement savings they built up. And so they put them with a financial advisor who got them to spread it out over a number of different places. And then the financial advisor was corrupt. And my parents, along with a lot of Kiwis, lost their savings. Mm. You know, they thought they'd been wise, but of course they were relatively innocent in all of this. And I was in the monastery at this moment, and my mother talked about it. And she said, she went to bed feeling sick, as you would. And then she realised they were still alive and okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she said, she heard the teachings. <laughs> no? The sense of impermanence and just being in the present moment. And she said she didn't worry about it again. It's possible. These teachings can be so freeing. And they're doing fine. They worked a bit more. They got a 
little job sorting out arguments with the power company. And, <laughs> you know, which was actually really empowering because they came into their sense of being you know, elders in the community, able to deal with all the hassles that were going on. They're doing really well. They live in a lovely little place with a beautiful garden. They have what they need. But I was just so struck. My mother does not meditate. <laughs> Touched into it at moments. She's just living a really good life, a generous life. But she's heard the teachings. Yeah. So that's the possibility. We're not talking about something abstracted. Yeah. She suffers over other things. Yeah. But not so much. So I leave it with you just to really get what this, why we can have confidence. That someone who has never, wouldn't call himself a Buddhist, hasn't ever done any formal practice, can have what is a real, given their background, I mean, you know, my dad would say he came from poverty, and he did. You know, so they have a whole lot of stuff around needing enough, but they could drop all of that. and live a really happy, well life with everything they need. So if my mother can do it, <laughs> yeah, I hope she doesn't mind me talking about it. She was so unhappy about me coming here. <laughs> but I'll tell her I've used her to encourage you. <laughs> so, yeah, I've talked a bit too long here, but hopefully it's helpful. Yeah. Which will put out the dialogues this morning, so we'll just see what we do. Yeah. So let's recognise we're quarter of an hour late and just sh everybody just shift their times. You know, if you were due at 10, it's 10.15, yeah? Just so you're not hanging, waiting. Okay? Gotcha. All right. So enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.